want to read from Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, several verses. It's in your bulletin and it's also in your Bibles. <laughs> yeah, that's a good thing. Paul says this. I'm going to read two passages of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he says this passage we, we preached on this summer. We'll touch on it again this morning. Wives, and now he's going to tell us how to submit to one another. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. And all the men said, Amen. Okay. <clears throat> ah, but your turn is coming. Husbands, husbands love your wives. Here's how you submit. Husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Amen. Another passage of scripture, before we get started, comes from Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. It says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, James and John, and kneeling down asked a favor of Jesus. What is it that you want? He said. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. In other words, she's saying, let them be the top honchos. Let them sit right up to you. You know, the person who sits next to the king is the viceroy of the king, and, and that's a prestigious spot. Come on, just let them in. Let them be bosses in the kingdom. It's going to last for a long time, I hear, so we want them to be in charge. Jesus says, you don't know what you are asking. <laughs> Woman, you're out of your brain. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink with? Now Jesus was referring to the cup at Gethsemane when he was going to drink the cup of suffering that he himself prayed would pass from him. But she probably thought, or they all thought, that he was talking about the royal chalice that the king would drink out of. So she says, yes. Or they all said, yeah, we can. We'll do that. No problem there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Jesus said to them, well, you will indeed drink from my cup, knowing that they would all, we'd all eventually be martyred. You're all, you are all going to drink of my cup. But to sit in my right hand, my right or left, is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. What Jesus is basically saying there is, folks, this is not open to competition. You got the wrong idea if you think you're going to run for an office in heaven. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. The ten apostles, they, they, they heard that these two brothers did this, and they probably thought they were the worst brown nosers in the world. And So a, a fight broke out about who was going to be the boss. Or at least that's probably what happened. The apostles were not at all above that. Jesus called them together and said, You know, here, here, here's the teaching on, on leadership. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. You know those Gentiles, they're, they're tyrants. They're into who's boss, they're into who has power, who's got control, whose vote is the final vote. That's what they're into. But listen to what Jesus says here. Not so with you. And the Greek is emphatic. Never let it be with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your, listen to this, slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life a ransom for many. Powerful passages. Let's pray. Lord, you have just called the church to be so radically different from the world in the way we think and the way we live. As different from the world as you are different from the world, Lord. And Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would use your word, which is the only thing that really transforms us. And, and Lord, take it, inspire it, surround it with your spirit, Lord God. Write it into our minds and write it into our hearts and change us, Lord. I pray, God, that here would be a beginning a continuation of the transformation, Lord, that you desire for your people throughout the Twin Cities, Lord. That we would be a community of servants, Lord. A community of people who just know what it is to be Christ-like in relationship to one another and free from the power ploys and the manipulation that so characterizes the world, Lord. But you've got to do it. We give it to you. We trust it to you. And we ask that you'd carry it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I've been... Um, I get like this around Christmas sometimes. Fall kind of does this, and, and Christmas kind of does this. It makes me a little weird. Actually, spring and summer do it too, but I get even weirder in, in the fall. Um, and I don't know. I, I get these weird thoughts, okay? And let me just share it with you because it actually, though it won't appear like it initially, it has to do with, with what I want to say this morning. But I sometimes get this feeling. I, maybe you do too. I hope you do. Otherwise, I'll feel very alone. But you get the feeling, well, do you ever get the feeling that you're in a play or something, that you're just sort of, like the world's sort of unreal. You ever get this feeling like the world's unreal, like it, it, we're just going through the motions? And, and it, it, any minute now, we're just going to sort of take off our mask and we'll laugh and the play's going to be over? Oh, no, you, yeah. okay, you don't think that one, do you? Uh, <laughs> but like, it, I, so, yeah, I, I get this feeling once in a while, like it's all scripted. Someone's going to walk through the door or the person walking out the door there, <laughs> they don't like what I'm saying. Uh, they... It's like there's a script that told them to do that. And, and we have all these different roles. We wear these different masks. We wear these different costumes. We all have our little part to play, and we're carrying it out, this, this scripted thing. And it's all fake, and it's all artificial. You ever get that feeling? It's just a weird kind of sensation, like this is a dream or something. Somebody nod your head. It's like, very, very lonely up here. Help me, I'm dying. It feels, the world, with all of our different roles and distinctions, feels so shallow. It all of a sudden seems so weird. When I look at how people treat movie stars or, or other famous people, you know, and they, they kind of, they eulogize them and, 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 you know, want their pictures and all this kind of stuff, it makes me feel like there must be a script to this because it doesn't make any kind of sense. These people, they're, who told them to do that? It, 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 there must be a, a stage manager someplace sending them in doing this sort of stuff, and it feels very shallow, artificial. Here's another weird thought I had this week. I'll share it with my theology class and they wanted me to be locked up but uh, let me share it with you but what would happen it gets at the same point what would happen if we woke up one morning and we didn't have any skin on <laughs> uh, <laughs> or, 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 or if the skin we had on was just totally transparent you couldn't even see it and what if our bones were totally transparent so you couldn't even see our skulls um, well what if it's just a thought experiment. You woke up in the morning and you look at your husband and, and you say, hi, honey, and you take another look and what you see is a four-pound pulsating blob of noodles connected to two eyeballs that are just sort of suspended in, in space. Now get a picture here. Suspended in space. And then they move back and forth. And instead of a nose, the nose would still be there except that you wouldn't see it because it would be invisible. But what you see is the, the, you know, the, the orifice coming out here and the vocal cords coming up. And we'd be like an organism, like some alien uh, and, and you can see all of our organs, you know, because uh, the skin is transparent. 
Wouldn't that change your perception of people? Think of how that would change. Yeah, it would. But in some ways, that is a more accurate perception of what's going on than the perception we've actually got. What if we could get behind, because this is like taking off the mask. What if we could get behind the outermost quarter inch that we define as being us? Huh? What we really are right now, as I'm looking out there, what we really are is a bunch of, of, of brains, four and a half pounds more or sometimes less, and, and, and we're controlling these eyes in our eye sockets and we got ears and all this information through all these little nervous systems and with all this kind of wet organisms all over the place. It's all going up there and feeding us information about what's going on in our environment. But we're organisms. We're God-created organisms. That's what we really are. And if we could see that, if we could get past the outermost quarter inch, which we call our skin and our skull, Think of how it would change our society. I mean, all of a sudden, we wouldn't be evaluating each other on the basis of how pretty we are or how non-pretty we are. We'd all be pretty ugly. It's... Wouldn't have no more acne problems. No one would ever watch Baywatch again. We would have no... <laughs> well, you don't watch it for the plot. I know that. Oh, here's an interesting plot. How will they save this person? <laughs> mouth to mouth once again, you know. But our standard ways of, of judging Christy Brinkley beautiful and somebody else not beautiful, it would all come to nothing. It would all be undermined. And what if, to go one step further, just carry this thought experiment, this bizarre thought experiment, a little bit further, because it's really getting us at truth, because that's what we really are. If we could just get behind the outermost quarter inch of skin. But what if we lost our egos? What if, for a moment, just for a moment, just for a moment, uh, we, we, uh, we stopped living life self-centeredly? What if we were as happy about somebody else's achievements and good fortune as we would be about our own? Think about that. If I got as happy about you getting a new house as I would be if I got a new house. What if I no longer live my life trying to feed myself, trying to bolster myself, trying to give myself some significance, trying to give myself some kind of specialness, trying to feed my own ego? What if there were no more egos to protect, no more egos to posture with? What if the world for a moment... As we walk around without any skin, without any skulls, having taken off our masks, now lo- lost that role, what would it be like? I submit to you that if we did that for a moment, think for a second here. All envy would stop. All jealousy would stop. All bitterness and anger would stop. I think all anxiety and depression would stop. You'd no longer have anything to fight for. All sense of competition would stop. All sense of pride, being, that would all go down the tubes real fast. It would all just be annihilated. All the wars would stop. The arguments would stop. There'd be peace. I used to think we'd be kind of happy. What if we loved one another as the Bible says we're supposed to love one another as much as we love ourselves? Think about that for a second. What a different world that would be. Now why don't we do that? And why don't we see like this? I suggest to you that it's... The answer to that question is the exact same reason why we have trouble submitting to one another. All right? This is what I'm getting at. We have a lot of trouble submitting to one another, and I think it's because the same reason that we feed our own egos and live in that mode. And it has to all do with the fall. Go back to Genesis chapter 3 here. What in the end happens, in a nutshell, is this. When... We were created. We were created for God to to fill our lives, for God to give us worth, for God to give us meaning, and for God to give us significance, and for God to give us love, and for God to give us our identity. We all need that. That's a non-negotiable thing. That's important. That's standard. That's, That's okay. 
But when we no longer get that stuff met from God, when we, following the pattern of Adam and Eve, when we fall, when we turn from God, when God ceases to be Lord of our life, then we need to start being Lord of our own life. And to be Lord of your own life means you have to try to feed your own needs. You have to try to meet your own needs. And so the pattern is this. If God is not infusing your life with significance, you know what? You have to be infusing your own life with significance. And if God isn't giving, making your life meaningful, you have got to make your own life meaningful. If God is not making you feel worthwhile, you've got to make your own life feel worthwhile. If God is not giving you an identity, you've got to get your own identity. And it's at that point, when we're no longer getting from God the life that he wanted to give us in the innermost parts of our soul, that we begin to invest the outermost quarter inch of our being with a whole lot of significance. Because we're starving, we're dying for some worth and significance, some significance. We've got to have that. And so we begin to latch on a bunch of things. We latch on a bunch of things that just don't make a bunch of difference, but we need them to make a bunch of difference in order to feed ourselves, to feel worthwhile, to feel special. When we cut off the pipeline of God's lordship, we need to be lords of our own life. And the best way, the easiest way, the most convenient way that we do that in a fallen world is by starting to be lord over each other. We need to... Fine, because we're starving on the inside. A way of being significant. A way of being meaningful. And so we got to carve out for ourselves something about us that's unique. Something that's special. Something that stands out. Something that makes our life meaningful. Something that makes it significant because we're not getting it from our Creator. And that sets us, folks, in competition with one another. And that's how the world runs. The world, when, G- when, when the Lord stops being the Lord of this world, it turns it into a scrambling pace place for power. You see it right from the beginning with Adam and Eve, right, 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 from, right from the word go in Genesis chapter 3. God created Adam and Eve to get their life from God. He wanted to pour his love, his whole being into them, and they would have such significance and value. He wanted them to have that individually, and then to express that love that he, they got from God towards one another. Out of an abundance. People were never meant to get married on the basis of their need. They're meant to get married on the basis of the abundance of the life they already have. But when they fell, when they turned from God, that lifeline to them got cut off. And what you see happening right away is a power struggle. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, the Lord says this to, to Eve. First he says, talks about all these curses that are going to come upon the earth. Man, because of this, because you turned from me, because you are no longer wanting to get from me your lifeline, the world's going to be a power struggle place. So he says to Eve, Eve, Adam, the husband, is going to lord over you and your desire shall be towards him. Now, a lot of people have taken that to mean, try to interpret that to mean, that that's the way God wants it. Right? That that's a godly marriage. That's the way it's supposed to be. Why? The husband's supposed to be the head of the household, the lord of the household, king of the castle, whose wish is everyone else's command. And that's the sign of a godly husband. We're doing this. Now we're moving to Nevada. And, and whatever they say goes, and that's supposed to be a godly house, and a, and a godly wife is supposed to, be the, supposed to desire that. Okay, this is the traditional, or one of the traditional interpretations of this. Okay, or sometimes they think that the desire there is, is sexual. Like she just desires him, and that's kind of her form of slavery. I'm not kidding. That's a, a, a standard way of looking at that passage. But you see, in its original context, if you look at this, God is pronouncing curses here. He's not pronouncing blessings. He's stating the way things are, in fact, going to be, in spite of what he wants, he's not saying the way things ought to be. And so what he's saying there, he's, he's not giving a prescription of, a, of the way a marriage is supposed to be. This is the way a marriage is not supposed to be. And it blows my mind that you have believers trying to pattern their marriages on the basis of the fall. <laughs> this is how it's not supposed to happen. What the Lord is saying there, 
It says, Adam is going to lord over you. The word lord over there is the Hebrew equivalent of the word that Jesus used in this passage in Matthew 20, which means to tyrannize, to tyrannize. The man's going to tyrannize over you, but your desire shall be towards him. And the word desire there has the connotation of seeking to control or manipulate. So what the Lord is saying there is this. This beautiful thing that I created called marriage, this relationship which could have been so beautiful, so good, it is now going to turn into a veritable war zone. Because you're not getting life from me, you're going to try to be getting life from who you're over, who's in charge, who's in control, who gets the vote, who gets to live life more conveniently, who's the boss. And that's going to turn this thing into a whole power struggle. But in the end, the Lord is saying in Genesis chapter 3, in the end, the man's going to win by virtue of his superior strength. He's going to lord, tyrannize over you. And historically, that has in fact been the case. But that's not the way God desires the thing. If you want to find out how God desires the marriage to be, you go back a chapter and look at Genesis chapter 1 to see how he created them in the first place. This is the fall. This is, this is the result of a power struggle that comes when people no longer are getting their life from God. We don't submit because submitting would mean death to us. We don't submit because our life is found in who we're in control of, who's in power, who's boss. And now, ever since then, we've had a whole society that is based on just that. When your inside needs are not being met, you invest your external quarter inch with a whole lot of significance. And what you do and who, who achieves what and all those things become very, very important. So what happens is people try to, the world turns into a scrambling for significance, a scramble for power. And that is where we get a whole world that is based on all of these silly, external, artificial, ungodly distinctions. come up with all sorts of ways of categorizing and, and, and criteria to pigeonhole and stereotype people to make ourselves feel very, very significant. It's like a little kid who needs to feel important, and he builds a little fort, and, and, and so he makes up a rule. The only people that can get into my fort are the people who have hair that looks like mine, because my hair is best. Because the kid needs to feel important, so he just looks at something about his life and says, well, here, here is, is, is something that makes me feel significant. This is what it means to be belong to my club. And we get a world that's based just on that. We get gender distinctions. We get racial distinctions. We get nationalistic distinctions. We get people making all sorts of differentials be between who's got a higher IQ or who's got a lower IQ or who's pretty or who's not pretty. Who's got the important job? Who doesn't have the important job? Who makes the big bucks or who doesn't make the big bucks? Who's the head of the household? Who's not the head of the household? Who's the pastor of the church? Who's not the pastor of the church? Who's got the talent to sing? Who doesn't have the talent to sing? Who can make the big dollars? Who can't make the big dollars? And so on and so on and so on. Just Distinction after distinction after distinction, and it's all a facade, it's all a role play, it's all phony baloney, but people are trying to desperately suck life off of it because they're not getting their life from God. And that's the way the world runs. And that's why we find the word to submit to be so harsh and to be so life-threatening, because we're invested in not submitting, carving out our unique thing. We might lose our personhood if we submit. The Lord calls us to a... Well, the... the, the, the Three things here. Number one, see for a moment. This is, that little thought, this is what that little thought experiment was supposed to do. Consider for a moment how shallow that thinking is. It's so pervasive. It runs the, 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 the nation, but think for a second how shallow that is. Did you, did you win some pre-birth contest that gave you a higher IQ than somebody else? If you didn't, and you didn't, then how can you take credit for that and feel proud of it?
and make it into a source of life. It's like a little kid saying, my hair's brown, and only brown-haired people can get in my fort. What does that have to do with your, your identity, who you really are? That's a role that you play, but you didn't earn that. And what pre-birth contest did you win that allowed you to be born in America and, and have the opportunity to make a lot of money rather than Calcutta and start before the age of five? Did you win some contest that we don't know about? And if you didn't, then how can you be taking pride for that? How can you be proud of that? How can you be making that a, a source of life? Did you win some pre-contest? Did you pass some great tests before you were born that said that you deserve to have healthy legs when somebody doesn't get healthy legs? And you deserve to have good eyesight when someone else doesn't have good eyesight? And, and, and you have an ability to make a lot of money when somebody else doesn't have a lot of money? Was there some, was there some contest, some pre-birth contest that determined you to be born with white skin or determined you to be, black, be born with black skin or gray skin or red skin? And if there wasn't, and there wasn't, then how can we begin to identify that and think that somehow that makes us unique and special and that's our source of life? See the shallowness of it. Take off the outermost quarter inch of the mask and see how small and petty and pathetic it is to invest those sorts of chance things with any sort of ultimate significance. It is the result, folks, only of people pathetic, pathetically starved people who need a reason to live because we all need a reason to live. And they need to feel significant. They need to feel important. They need to feel loved. They need to feel exalted or something or other. And so they hit upon stupid, shallow, arbitrary external criteria to feed themselves with that. See how shallow it is. See also how sad it is. Because it does not work. It does not work, does it? You can only get so much mileage out of your good looks. You know, you can wring that, you can wring that towel, wring it out for all it's worth for so long, but you know what? You end up coming up empty. And you can only wring so much uh, value out of the fact that you've got a nice religious family, and you can only wring so much meaning out of the fact that you've got a nice talent, and you can only wring so much value out of the, the money that you're earning, but you know in your heart of hearts, I don't care if you've got a million dollars, that you're impoverished on the inside. And it's nice to have all that money, but you know what? It doesn't feed you. It doesn't, you know in your heart of hearts that you are empty. And what you're trying to achieve with that is not going to be achieved. It's sad, and you live your life. You live your life. When God's not filling this innermost vacuum, you live your life as a vacuum. You live it as a black hole. You live it hungry. You live it hungry. Find any, find any one who invests, and there's a lot of them around, who invest either explicitly or implicitly, a lot of importance in these external things, in the race, in the gender, or what have you, and you'll find a person who's very hungry on the inside, who's starving, who's trying to make something out of nothing. Know that it's shallow, know that it's silly, know that it's empty and very sad, and know this. A third thing is that it is bondage. This is what Paul calls living in the flesh. This is what Paul calls living in the flesh, and our society is structured on living in the flesh. Living in the flesh is bondage because you have to perpetually be trying to feed your soul with things that were never meant to feed your soul. Living in the flesh is bondage because you forever need to be reacquiring your identity, reestablishing your worth. Living in the flesh means you are going to inevitably, because your existence is so precarious, because you're forever living in competition, because you're forever living in want and desire over against other people, it's life lived in bondage to anxiety. It's life lived in bondage to depression. It's life lived in bondage to fatigue because you're constantly trying to get life out of things that are not life. 
It is bondage. It is a ball and chain. It is just bars that bar you in. This quarter-inch this quarter inch facade of the role that we play and the cars that we drive and the house that we own and the skin color that we've got and the gender that we have, that external quarter-inch, which you try to use to invest your life with some semblance of significance, ultimately is a cage that keeps you trapped in. And the only thing but the only thing that can set you free from that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? When you have the Lord Jesus Christ, when you know who you are because of what Christ did for you, when you know when the only freedom that there is, and this, this, is, this is great freedom, is when you understand that those things just do not matter, and you understand that all you are never shall be, you are because of the cross. Because God created you with a passionate love, God saved you with a passionate love, and that is what gives you meaning, and you're going to have that and savor that and enjoy that throughout eternity. And folks, when you've got meaning from Jesus Christ, you don't need to be trying to lap it up from some other source. When you've got significance and worth from, from the Lord Jesus Christ, when you've got a purpose in your life because of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you have an identity that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, you are free. Because you're free from those, the, 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 the chains that this world puts upon you as, as false ways of trying to get that life. When you've got a million bucks, you don't need to be trying to lap up little pennies on the ground. And so the person who's got the life of Jesus Christ in them is freed from trying to get life from all the ways that don't give you life. And that is freedom. That is total freedom. Amen. That is total freedom. Praise the Lord. That is freedom. Most people in this world don't know what it is to be free from, free, free from, from having to worry about what people think or free from worrying about, uh, does everyone notice how pretty I am and free from every, someone noticing what job you have and all the other things. They don't know the freedom from that. But the believer is called to know that because it's a true thing. And out of that, the Lord creates this, a vision for a new community, which is once again the humanity that God always was intended to have. The body of Christ is to be the place where we take off the mass. We see inside the quarter, outermost inch, the outermost quarter inch, we understand that for all the distinctions this world might have, they don't amount to a hill of beans. Because the body of Christ is to be the body where people understand what their worth is and value is for free, and therefore they don't need to be investing the outermost quarter inch with that. And that's why the body of Christ can be the one place on the planet where people understand that it's okay and necessary to submit to one another in love. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out. And the words that Peter said to the crowd there, the Jewish crowd there, was so significant. The Holy Spirit was poured out. And they were all speaking in different tongues. And that drew a crowd. And the crowd gathered around. And Peter said this to them. He said, this is what God prophesied about 800 years ago in the prophet Joel. He said this. In the last days, in this last chapter of world history that we are still a part of, in the last days, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. And every Jew in that crowd had to go, Woo-ha! What? Because it was understood in Judaism that the Holy Spirit is only intended for Jewish people. In fact, it was understood that the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, was only intended for male Jewish people. In fact, it was understood, it was clearly understood, that the power of the Holy Spirit was only was only reserved for religious, high official religious male Jewish people. And here in one word, in, one, in, in, in just one sentence, Peter just pronounces in a prophetic proclamation inspired by God 
that that way of looking at people, that way of putting some people high and putting some people low, that, that those gender distinctions and that those racial distinctions and that those religious distinctions are altogether invalidated because now our lifeline with God through the power of the Holy Spirit has been opened up once again so we don't need to rely on those kind of external distinctions anymore. Praise God. And then he goes on and says this in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 18. This is where it really gets wild. Your sons and your daughters are going to prophesy. And everyone in that Jewish crowd had to be going, whoa again. Because now he's saying this pro- prophetic gift, prophecy was, was and is the most, uh, Paul said it's the highest of all the gifts. It is the most noble office because it's proclaiming the word of God under the anointing. And Peter is saying, now your sons and your, and your daughters are going to prophesy. Not just only males, it includes females, and not just females, but young females, your daughters. God's going to be sending out his spirit, this anointing on whoever he wants to, and if he chooses to do it on females, if he chooses to do it on males as well as females, then that's his prerogative. And then he says, and not only that, but on your servants, male and female, I will send out my spirit, Acts 2.18. And the jaws had to be hitting the ground because now Peter is saying, not only is the racial distinction now invalidated, not only is the religious hierarchy distinctions now invalidated, not only is the, 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 the uh, did I say gender distinction? No, I didn't. The gender distinction now invalidated, but the economic distinction, the social distinctions, the class distinctions, they are all together invalidated. And if I want to take a slave in the household of Rome and make him a prophet over his master, the Lord is saying, that I can very well do that, and that's the kind of thing the kingdom of God is going to be built on. It's going to be a kingdom, a community, with a silly, shadow, artificial, and destructive external walls that people use to classify one another, to pigeonhole one another, to look up or look down upon one another. To, 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 to just put people in boxes, those things are going to be utterly, utterly invalidated, annihilated, thrown in the deepest sea, because in this community, finally, as it was supposed to be in the beginning, the one thing that's going to be known to matter is your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit restores in your life. And so Christianity is to be a divisionless, distinctionless community because it's to be a genderless community, a classless community, a raceless community, a religious hierarchy-less community because it's to be a community of the Holy Spirit. A community where we can look at each other and see through the outermost quarter inch of the skin and look past all the other artificial distinctions that are there. And that is why, folks, the Christian community, unlike every other, as Jesus would say in Matthew 20, every other Gentile community is to be the place where people are free and empowered to have the freedom to submit to one another in love. Because we no longer need to be posturing. Do you know how much of the world is a matter of posturing? You know, you just kind of find it. Where are we? In the body of Christ, there's no need for that because we know who we are in Jesus Christ. We have life from Jesus Christ. Paul then applies this. This is the final point. He applies this to the people who are going to be most tempted to follow the world's pattern of leadership and not submit, and that is leaders. And so he says, Husbands, I got a new model for you here in the marriage relationship. He doesn't repeat Genesis chapter 3 at all. He gives the opposite. You know how the Lord said how because of the fall, the husband's going to lord over, tyrannize over the woman? Here's what I have to say for you, leaders. Men, you want to be godly men, godly leaders? Do what Jesus did. Lay down your life. Go to the cross. Follow the model of Jesus Christ. 
who had all the power in the world, and in Paul's culture, the culture gave men all the power in the world. Up to, they, they, they could decide to, uh, when, the, when, the, when the child was born, if they went like this, the child lived. If they went like that, the child got put out on the, on the hill. They had all the power in the world. Paul is saying, be like Jesus. You got the power. You want real power? You want real godly male leadership? Use that power like Jesus did by going to the cross. Jesus Christ could have stood up in heaven and done an Arnold Schwarzenegger muscle flex and had everyone just to follow in obedience. Yes, we will go along. He chose to lead by going to the cross. He could have been our authority by shouting some threatening voice from heaven. He chose to do it by going to the cross. He could have sent 10,000 legions of militant angels to hold a sword over our head and said either you follow him or you die, but he didn't do it that way. He chose to lead by laying down his life and going to the cross. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so also, leadership in this new, radically different community has got to look like Jesus Christ. And let's start in the home. Men, you want to be the head of the household. You want to be male, uh, real leaders. You want to be Christ-like leaders. Do what Jesus did. And it's just the opposite of what our culture still is saying, what, what Genesis 3 is saying. It's just the opposite of being the muscle-flexing, raging, screaming that everyone's afraid of boss. It's laying down your life. You initiate submission. The goal here is to submit to one another. But husbands, you take on the responsibility to initiate it. And so it is in the church. In the church, the only authority that there is, there's no hierarchy, there's no pedestals. If you want to be in leadership, you know what you've got to do? Be a slave, Jesus says. Be a slave. Be like the Son of Man. Leadership! It's not based on some kind of prestigious thing that you're up there and you've got the tie-breaking vote and your word is law. It's not a pedestal and not sort of, this is what's wrong with this term reverend, folks. There's not like a certain class of people that you're supposed to revere. Paul says submit to one another in reverence to Christ. There's one reverend in the body of Christ and that's Reverend Jesus. There ain't no other reverence. Amen. I, for legal purposes, they can use that, but you know what? Do not revere me. Do not revere anybody. We don't reverberate. <laughs> Revere Jesus Christ. Out of reverence to Jesus Christ, we submit to one another. There's no hierarchy here. Rather, leadership is defined by servitude. It's defined by submission. You've got a gift. God give you a gift. Serve other people with that gift, whether it's coffee, whether it's hospitality, whether it's leading a prayer group, whether it's a small group, whether it's preaching, whether it's music, whether it's greeting, whatever it is. Use your gift in the body of Christ. But don't make it into an external quarter of an inch mask that you wear to try to suck life out of. Amen? No. Just use it in service to the Lord. Had a, finally, let me just say this. I, I, this illustrates what I'm talking about. A, a young lady came up uh, uh, to the altar about four weeks ago. This is a lady who, along with about a, a dozen people in this church, are here every Sunday morning at 6.30 to start setting things up. It takes a lot of work to get this thing going, and they're here to tear down. That is ministry. That is greatness. This, this woman does this. She came forward at the end of a service one time and she said, if I, the music team want to come up here, let's close with a song. I, I don't know which one yet, but we'll close with a song. Come on up. But, but uh, she said this. She said this. Because the Lord told me to tell you, and she was really awkward about this, real bashful, kind of like this. And I go, come on, just say it, just say it. She finally goes, the Lord told me to tell you that I'm supposed to pray for you. And I feel so stupid. I go, why do you feel stupid? And she said, because you'll think I'm stupid because who am I to tell you I'm going to pray for you? And see, that just reeks with all the Gentile model of leadership that, that, that Jesus was talking about. Behind this was the idea. It's the Hollywood thing. It's the Hollywood thing. It, it, it's this, and I understand where she's coming from. She's just a sincere person. But it, the Hollywood thing is that the person who gets noticed is more important than the people who don't get noticed. 
And that, from a kingdom perspective, is a crock. And I said to this woman, you are a great woman of God. God has doing some great things in our life. And you are a great woman of God. And if no one notices it or if everybody notices, it doesn't make any difference at all. That's just about an external quarter-inch facade. You're a great woman of God. And I am honored. I've got to be honored. And the kid, I submit to you that you would use the authority that God has given you, the incredible prayer power that you have, and it is as great as Billy Graham, it's as great as anybody on the planet, that you are going to use that prayer power to protect me and my family. I thank you for that. In the kingdom of God, we submit to one another, and, and the whole phony baloney business of looking up and looking down on the basis of all the shallow external quarter of inch stuff just doesn't apply. There's only one way to do that, though, folks, and that's by getting life from Jesus Christ. That's the only way to do it. Amen. You drink, amen. Praise God. Get life from Jesus Christ. And when you get life from Jesus Christ, you're freed from all these external leeches that try to suck off your life and they need to protect, and then you're free to submit to one another.